right, we are back. I think we've talked in this program about how there's three types of lies. There's lies, there's damn lies, and there's statistics. And I guess the, uh, the viewpoint uh, piece that was in the Sacramento Bee by John McCammon, described as director of the California Department of Fish and Game a few weeks back, I guess qualifies for all three. Mr. McCammon, who I presume uh, you know, wants to see more California fish and game, started his piece referring to a 1965 meeting of one of his predecessors, I guess, director of the Department of Fish and Game, Walter Shannon, who presented his annual report to the commission. And in that report noted the significant accomplishment of selecting the peripheral canal as the best method of transporting water from the north to the south across the delta. Apparently that 1965 report concluded that the peripheral canal was the only opportunity to both protect and enhance these resources. He then says, and I guess this is his punchline, there's been no change in that position or in the relative benefits of the peripheral canal when compared to other options for the export of water since that time. Okay, we're going to put the same question out there. Someone needs to explain how you can improve the quality of the fisheries in the Delta by taking more water out of the Delta. Mr. McCammon puts numerous uh, pieces of data in his piece, I guess to make it look more plausible. He mentions how the pumps take water from the San Joaquin Sacramento rivers when fish are vulnerable. The water and the fish in that water are brought south to a dead end and become subject to predation from other fish. The mix of fresh water and salt water is altered from its natural and seasonal variation. And that various rivers in the Delta flow backward from their natural direction when the pumps are running. And then if you're waiting like I was to explain how the peripheral canal can fix any of those, well, you're going to come away disappointed. He goes on to note that the federal and state governments have, in, have passed Endangered Species Act uh, since 65. Research has established that long-term trends indicating that the current condition in the Delta cannot sustain native fish species. He notes that native fish, including Delta and longfish, longfin smelt and green sturgeon, are at or near their lowest populations ever. And the salmon industry has been virtually shut down in California for the past three years. Now see if you can follow me on what he says after that. Not all these issues are a direct result of the operation of the state and federal water projects, but these operations exacerbate the effects of many other stressors and therefore cannot be ignored. He goes on. Many other factors may be addressed in the Bay Delta Conservation Plan planning effort, including wastewater discharge and its effect on nutrients in the Delta, agricultural and urban storm runoff, and the role of introduced plant and animal species, including predatory fish species such as black bass and striped bass. Well, I guess while they're planning, they can look at the phases of the moon while they're at it. But the basic question remains, how do you fix any of that by taking yet more water out of the delta and shipping it south? But he goes on to say, oh, the pumps are only going to operate them at certain times. And of course, they'll watch those very carefully. I presume only ship more water south when L.A. demands it. And he goes on, blah, 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 concludes, uh, for these reasons, the California Department of Fish and Game has signed the Bay Delta Conservation Plan planning agreement and has already committed over four years toward that effort. Four years of what? The Department of Fish and Game is committed to what then-Director Shannon insisted needed to be done in 1965, build the peripheral canal. Okay, open letter, John McCammon. We'll bring you on the show the second you can explain to us how it is this is going to work and help the fish. I have to agree that a peripheral canal may allow the water to go the right way 
instead of the reverse way when the pumps are running. Why that's a big deal, I, I, I don't know. And on that same page in the Sacramento Bee, which is the November 21st issue, they had a report from Diane Feinstein, a special to the Bee, noting that a UC Davis report is showing that time is running out to save Lake Tahoe. Estimates are that the average snowpack in the Sierra Nevada around Tahoe will decline by 40 to 60 percent by 2011, according to this report. This would likely bankrupt Tahoe's ski industry, threaten, our water, threaten the water supply of Reno and other communities, and degrade the, the lake's fabled water clarity. It is devastating. That's why Feinstein was pushing the, pushing the passage of the um, Lake Tahoe Restoration Act of 2010, which she co-sponsored with uh, Harry Reid, Barbara Boxer, and John Ensign of Nevada. They're going to make an effort to reduce the load of external nutrients entering the lake, which is, you know, what happens when you build around the lake and runoff comes off of uh, houses and roads and lawns and uh, golf courses that are overly fertilized. You add more nutrients to Lake Tahoe and it's able to support a growth of algae. Got to say, on a personal level, having swum in that lake, you know, with goggles on and looked down back in uh, the early 70s and having done so a few years ago, it is a dramatically different lake bottom over the past four decades. According to Diane Feinstein, in 1968, the first year that UCD scientists made measurements using a, a, a Secchi disc, you could see this white disc 102 feet down. Over the next three decades, the clarity declined to where you could only see it 64 feet down in 1997. I don't think that's the half of it. There's algae all over the rocks, and 40 years ago, there was not. Anyway, I, I hope they pass that. I hope they can do something to save Tahoe. It is the jewel of the Sierra. And speaking of water in California, and I guess we are, how about this item from the Sacramento Bee, September 15th, Levy's Flunk Visual Exam. Article by Matt Weiser, how the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers is uh, flunking our levees because they have trees on them. The Army Corps doesn't seem to get that the trees apparently stabilize our levees and are necessary for wildlife as opposed to places like the Mississippi uh, Delta. And those idiots are still talking about stripping all the trees and intrusions off of all of California's levees. If you read down in Matt's article, it notes that under the framework agreement, which they previously decided not to penalize uh, uh, the local um, maintainers of levy, I guess, they quoted Timothy Kerr, general manager of the American River Flood Control District, who said that um, the inspection was strictly visual. It doesn't examine the levy's internal strength. Mr. Kerr, it was noted, criticized the federal maintenance rules for focusing on issues like tree removal, which may offer little bang for the buck. Okay, before we start stripping trees, shouldn't we establish whether trees help or hinder the levee structure? Doesn't that seem pretty fundamental to this discussion? I don't know. The Army Corps of Engineers has an absolutely atrocious environmental record in this country, and uh, if you want to see an example of their work, sometime when you're in the Niles area of Fremont, take a look at Alameda Creek as it, run, as it runs under Mission Boulevard. The Army set out to achieve flood control circa 1971, even though there hadn't been a flood for 15 years, thanks to other measures that had been taken. But they converted the creek bed to something that kind of resembles, well, you ever see those movies in L.A. when they're driving on what used to be the L.A. Uh, the LA River? Giant cement culvert piercing the heart of L.A.? Well, this isn't quite that bad, but it does resemble the lunar surface more than it does that of Earth. 
or at least did when they were done. After after the decades have gone by, the trees and brushes are finally coming back. We will continue to follow this story. How about this item from the Sacramento Bee uh, about high-speed rails math being questioned? This is repeated from the Fresno Bee, an article by Tim Sheehan, which expressed doubts as to whether California's high-speed rail system would have the, uh, the ridership that people would hope. In fact, there's allegations in this piece that UC Berkeley professors Samer Mandant and UC Irvine professor David Brownstone saying the methods that were being used um, to, uh, to estimate ridership made incorrect assumptions and cooked the numbers to inflate ridership figures to meet preconceived expectations. You know, I was just driving Highway 5 and Highway 99 not too long ago, and, and I got to say, if there's a way to get to Los Angeles or Fresno or, you know, points down the San Joaquin Valley that involve high-speed rail, I think people are going to jump at the chance to use it. If you've been on a high-speed train in Europe or China or other places that uh, seem to be able to manage this feat, uh, you'll find that it's a wonderful way to get around. And I guess we, we could afford such a system. We wouldn't be quibbling over this if we weren't spending billions and billions of dollars every week for crazy wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, which are accomplishing nothing. Generation ago, China was an economic basket case. Now it's got high-speed rail all over the place. We're standing with Arnold Schwarzenegger on this one. This is a good idea, and we should do it. We don't have time for it today, but on next week's program, we're going to talk a little bit about how uh, you, dear listener, are weird in how you think. And your weird thinking is due to the fact that you are weird. You're Western, educated, industrialized, rich, and democratic, a.k.a. weird. You don't think of things the way most of humanity does. We're going to talk about that on next week's program. In this program, we do try to present data to uh, what, in our opinion, is open people's eyes to some new ideas, some new facts, some new concepts, etc. We've come to realize that uh, convincing people of anything can be uh, a tall order. Consider the average Joe going to a casino. We didn't read the book, but we liked the review of it that was in New Scientist some months ago about the book What's Luck, What's Luck Got to Do With It? The History, Mathematics, and Psychology of the Gambler's Illusion. The author was Joseph Mazur. They gave, of course, the, they gave the classic example in the review. You go to the roulette table, and you watch the num- winning numbers come up. 21, 36, 16, 9, 32, 7, 25, 36, 14. Incredible. Every one of those numbers is red. In the long run, of course, the number of reds and blacks must even out. So as you observe, the laws of statistics are blatantly out of kilter, so you need to bet on black. That's a sure thing. I mean, it's been red how many times in a row? It's got to come up black. It's overdue. This, of course, is the famous gambler's fallacy, one of many seemingly intuitive ideas about luck that turn out to be utterly wrong. Pretty sure they don't sell copies of this book over at the Cash Creek Casino. I don't know whether I'm going to ever get a chance to actually read the book, but, you know, it's probably a book worth taking a chance on. And I can't help but think of Rodney Dangerfield that once said, you know, I tried to join Gamblers Anonymous. Uh, They gave me two to one, I wouldn't make it. And I guess in closing, we should tack something onto that little item, which would be uh, what Gideon Rockman had to say in the Financial Times back in September, which was that the vanity of economists needs to be challenged. Economists claim to be scientists who, given the right data and analytical techniques, can make authoritative predictions about the future. But the entire attempt to treat economics as a science is misconceived. In reality, economics is, or ought to be, more closely allied with the study of history, 
which recognizes that there are boundaries on what can be expected from the study of the past. Certainly no historian, with the exception of a few deluded Marxists, would claim that history could be used to predict the future. Well, maybe not, but it may, may keep you from avoiding some dumbass mistakes that were made in the past. But said Mr. Rockman, history can suggest lessons and parallels and provide wisdom, but it doesn't claim to offer a sociological equivalent to the laws of physics. Yet despite the serial failures of economists to predict financial upheavals, they still believe that they are indeed that there are indeed predictive laws out there waiting to be discovered. Recent events, incredibly, don't appear to have loosened the profession's grip on such brash certainties. So I guess we really should close with some economist jokes. Such as, if you laid all the world's economists end-to-end, they still wouldn't reach a conclusion. How about this one? A man's walking on a country road, comes across a shepherd and a huge flock of sheep, tells the shepherd... I'll bet you 100 bucks against one of your sheep, I can tell you the exact number of your flock. Shepherd thinks it over. It's a big flock. He takes the bet. 937, says the man. The shepherd's astonished, because that's exactly right. He says, okay, I'm a man of my word. Take an animal. Man picks one up, begins to walk away. Wait, cries the shepherd. Let me have a chance to get even. Double or nothing, I can guess your exact occupation. Man says, okay. Shepherd says, you're an economist for a government think tank. Amazing, responds the man. You're exactly right. How'd you deduce that? Well, said the shepherd, put down my dog and I'll tell you. How about this one? How many conservative think tank economists does it take to change a light bulb? Answer, none. If the government would just leave it alone, it'll screw itself in. And finally, we have a joke told by the famous economist John Kenneth Galbraith, who swore this actually happened. As a boy, he lived on a farm in Canada. On the adjoining farm lived a girl he was very fond of. One day, they sat together on the top rail of the cattle pen and watched a bull who was servicing a cow. Galbraith turned to the girl with what he hoped would be a suggestive look and said, That looks like that would be fun. To which she replied, Well, Ken, she's your cow. Anyway, that about does it for time. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. This program was produced by Edward McMillan. I'm Douglas Everett. We'll see you next week at the same time.